0: Good to be with you again. It's been a couple of years, and a couple of things have happened in the interim. Um, but anyway, the Lord is good. What I'm going to do is uh, there's a series of four four viewpoints from the. Puritan period in England of the 17th century and then we'll finish up going back to the Reformation and talking about a man named Pierre Verret. I guess most of you haven't heard of him but he was a friend of Calvin's but he was he's the, the forgotten man of the Reformation and Bernie will make sure that I keep to the target, he's the one that's helped me with, with that so This morning we're looking at Thomas Watson who lived 1620 to 1686 and I've put alongside that John Bunyan's birth date so you can compare the two, very similar. But what are are the Puritans? Because it's a word that's sometimes misunderstood. The Puritans were a dominant Protestant group in English domestic life from 1567 to 1660. Their name came from the desire to purify the Church of England customs, ideas, doctrines that were without a biblical basis. So if it's not in the scripture, get rid of it, is basically what they were concerned about. Therefore they sought to transform rather than to overflow Overthrow the Anglican Church. They opposed episcopacy, the Book of Common Prayer, and Roman Catholic ritual like wearing vestments and the ring in marriage ceremonies. They opposed saints' days, godparents at baptism, clerical absolution, the sign of the cross, kneeling for communion, and the use of the surplice by the minister. Now I was interested that they opposed godparents at baptism because I was christened uh, or baptised, whichever word you want to use, in Sydney brought up an Anglican uh, in a, a broad church not an evangelical church. My godparents never went anywhere near church. They were friendly folk but it brought home the truth. If the godparents are supposed to do what they're supposed to do then mine, although they were friendly, didn't have an ounce of Christian understanding in their mind. So that's the sort of thing that the Puritans were concerned about. Many Puritans advocated Presbyterian order and Calvinism, obviously from John Calvin in the previous century. Many legal, gentry and businessmen were Puritans. and Cambridge and Oxford universities became the centre of influence. Now some thoughts from Martin Lloyd-Jones who was regarded by many as the last of the Puritans. I don't think we can ever say uh, someone is the last of anything because God brings up others. But Lloyd-Jones was certainly an amazing minister in his uh, emphasis. He alongside others made the point that there was nothing more remarkable about the Puritans than their emphasis upon the conscience you and I have a conscience you can't get rid of it the conscience has been rid of us all our life the danger is for the preacher to emphasize something emotional now we're all emotional people aren't we we all have emotions and they come to us and deal with us in a variety of situations But if our emphasis is on the emotions that is not biblical and it doesn't help in the long run. But the conscience brings us back to the reality of the word and what it's about. So I remember Jeff Bingham saying quite often to speak to the conscience because that is what the centre of our understanding the Puritan conscience was a characteristic term. So this is some of more quotes here. Self-examination is the setting up of a court in conscience and keeping a register there that by strict scrutiny a man may know how things stand between God and his own soul a good Christian begins as it were the day of judgment here in his own soul well let's ask the question do you know how good or problematic your soul is how is it between you and God this morning is it something that we fob away or is it the reality of what he is doing through the conscience by his spirit Plus, Puritan sermons were never finished until their application. They deplored a mere academic theoretical view of the truth. The Puritans understood that a mindless Christianity sponsors a spineless Christianity. An anti-intellectual gospel quickly becomes an empty, formless gospel that doesn't get beyond felt needs so there's again the reminder of felt needs, we all have needs we all have situations that we face, some of them are upsetting but to emphasise that the Puritans would not do because they could see that it would end up in more difficulty and that might be a good thing to talk about over a couple later except I can't stay too long this morning another quote We must go with the stick of divine truth and beat every bush behind which a sinner hides until like Adam who hid, he stands before God in his nakedness. That's what the Puritans were concerned about. There's a couple of scholars around today whose books are available and I'd encourage you if you want to buy a book for Christmas that uh, Joel Beakey and Mark Jones are well worth obtaining. Joel Beakey is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's uh, connected with the Dutch Reformed Church. Mark Jones is the pastor of the Faith uh, Vancouver Presbyterian Church. So they come from different denominational backgrounds. But in one of their books... They've written, a person with a good conscience has an enlightened, tender and faithful conscience and therefore can face death with peace. At the end of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Mr Honest is about to cross the River Jordan. He had asked good conscience to meet him at the river and good conscience was there to help him through the final trial of death likewise it is through the gift of a good conscience that God answers Simeon's prayer in Luke chapter 2 verse 29 Lord now let us thou thy servant depart in peace that would be a great way to end our time John Flavel whom we looked at a couple of years ago 1628 to 1691, a marvellous preacher in the Puritan era, wrote that the scriptures teach us the best way of living, the noblest way of suffering and the most comfortable way of dying. They taught that preparing to die is the first step in learning to live. So I need to ask you, are you ready for death? If you're not, you're not ready for life. Now death is not a subject that we want to embrace but it's going to come to all of us. In our family in our friends, an old mate of mine, died just the other day, age 90 Um, we have coffee every week but he won't be there again. Was he a Christian? I don't know. We talked about faith, but I don't know whether he came to that. He was an amazing businessman in his life. You see, this is the important thing. We come to a session like this, and my concern is not to give information alone. There will be information, obviously. But we've got to go beyond that for God to speak to us. And you can go through sessions like this, the same as you can go through church services and be a zombie. And it just doesn't impact at all. So I'd like to ask us all, uh, for, you, for you and me to answer ourselves, do you know how to die? Are you ready to die? And therefore to live? The Puritans emphasised the scriptures and dedicated Christian scholarship, Trinitarian theology, the electing grace of God, the cross, the applicatory work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of sinners, the church and biblical worship. The scripture in all areas of life and personal conversion now a couple of verses that they emphasise that we know quite well and uh, I'll read them from the English Standard Version which I think is the best translation available today uh, John chapter 3 and verse 3 well it's nearly as good as the King James put it that way uh, verse verse 3 Jesus and Nicodemus Jesus answered him truly truly I say to you unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God why does he use the word see instead of enter or go to because when we're confronted with the truth there are sometimes people who say I can't see what he's getting at In other words, my conscience is not affected. Now, There's a great depth in that word see, which we haven't got time to go into today. But to see the reality of the kingdom of God, which is the rule of God, and we are under the rule of God now, because he is king. God is king. And that's been my answer constantly right through this, Covid situation. I don't even like using the word, where people are saying, "Well, isn't it a mess?" and "Isn't this happening?" and now the floods, and they are serious, isn't that about it? The floods in Victoria, etc., and we might cop some in our state as well. But who's in charge? Who's the one who who calls the tune? Is it just fate? Is it just a fluke? Is it just Oh well, whatever will be, will be. Or is God king and sovereign? And unless we can answer that question by faith, we've got a battle on our hands. The Lord is king. So that's in brief what he's saying to Nicodemus. And then James chapter 2 and verse 17. James is a very practical book. But the Puritans said, so also faith by itself if it does not have works is dead. Now Christians profess to have faith. What about works? The works are the automatic result of the faith that we have. Works don't bring us faith. Works have no part whatsoever in justification. It's It is by faith. We are made righteous, declared righteous by God through faith. Works don't enter into it. But the works are the result of our faith. And if the works aren't there, then is the faith there? And I'd suggest to you the answer is no. If there are no Christian works there was no Christian faith. Well, the Puritans emphasised that. It's important in history that we put everything in its context. And uh, each, each week I'll refer to this in some part. Who were the monarchs? Who was leading England in the 17th century? Quite a collection. I'm sure our new king read some of this with um, interest because he's, the predecessors of his names get quite a mention. Henry the, Henry VIII who was in the Reformation period is the one that we normally go back to because things changed while he was king. I certainly did change. He was followed by his son Edward VI. Who only lived a few years as king. But during that time, the Protestants really got things working. And it was through Edward the, Edward the sixth, and he had to, to uh, sign the documents himself as king, that a lot of Protestant aspects were done in England. Well, of course, he died as a teenager, and he was, um, followed by Mary who is generally known as Bloody Mary because of all the Protestants that were put to the stake. And uh, she decided she'd better have a fake pregnancy because she wasn't pregnant. And the, the story, and I'm still not sure how true it was, but the story was that she stuffed a pillow up her dress to give the impression that she was pregnant. But uh, God took her out of the situation as well. Plus the pillow. She was followed, of course, by Elizabeth I. Uh, A fascinating period of reign. Elizabeth never married and never had any children. Certainly not legally. There are unanswered questions about Elizabeth's reign. She's the one that covered herself with white powder, her face with white powder, uh, to try and... Um, give the impression that she wasn't ageing at all. Must try that sometime. But uh, Elizabeth died without any family after her in 1603. Now that brings us to our period which is called the Puritan period. She was followed by James Sixth of Scotland who took the throne and became James I of England and Scotland. It was during his reign that the authorised version or the King James version was printed in 1611. I'm not suggesting that James was a Christian, I think it was just a political aspect that brought that about but we're very thankful that the authorised version was published during that time. Then there came Charles I 1649 but he lost his head he went the wrong side of parliament and parliament decided we don't want him as king so he was beheaded I think he's the only king in recent centuries that was beheaded but you can tell me if I'm wrong later on England then became a republic for the years during the Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell Cromwell was offered the crown he was offered to be king would have sounded good, King Oliver but uh, he refused that offer and he didn't last very long either now a lot of the Puritans wanted the king back again and there was a king and that's the son of Charles I who was Charles II and so he came back into the picture but as a Roman Catholic things didn't work out too well 1660 to 1685 he was followed by James II who was deposed so he didn't reach the end of the road either but he was the last Roman Catholic monarch There has not been a Roman Catholic on the throne of England since. And there must never be. His 15-year-old Protestant daughter, it's quite interesting, there's a Roman Catholic king who has a Protestant daughter who really turned against him. Mary II, she married William of Orange. William came from the Netherlands and he was known in Northern Ireland and Scotland as King Billy. He was invited to take the English throne, which he did. He was installed in 1689. That was preceded by what we call the Battle of the Boyne, north of Dublin in Ireland, when William and his troops defeated the forces of the king. James was defeated. He was exiled to France and protected by Louis XIV. Mary died in 1694 and William then in 1702. Now that's a, a rough overview of the royal people uh, who were leading from the front in England. I put in some musicians and composers because I thought there's an amazing list of them and we have a lot of their music still today. Um, now, they don't all precisely fit into the period that we're looking at, but it was close enough. So when you get home, you can check your CDs or DVDs or whatever it is, that, or records, they're coming back. Uh, the only hymn writer that I could easily find was Isaac Watts. And of course, we still sing his hymns today. And the dates are alongside. Henry Purcell, marvellous composer. Jeremiah Clarke, marvellous brass music from Jeremiah Clarke. Now we'll see how my Italian goes. Antonio Vivaldi uh, and Claudio Monteverdi. And then Johann Pachelbel. I'm sure you've heard Pachelbel's Canon very popular with a variety of instruments Johann Sebastian Bach Akendilo Corelli Tomaso Albinoni Georg Tilleman Giovanni Gabriele and of course George Frederick Handel an amazing list of musicians, composers that were ministering during that time. Now it's important also that we look again at what else was happening in the Puritan period before we get on to Thomas Watson himself. Um, And I've got to do this briefly, otherwise we'd be here for a couple of hours. The Great Ejection After the restoration of Charles II to the throne, St. Bartholomew's Day was declared on August the 24th, 1662. It's called Black Bartholomew. It's in co-sequence of the Act of Uniformity that was passed in Parliament in May of that year, where more than two and a half thousand ministers were rejected or expelled from their churches, their residents, their incomes because they would not conform to the Book of Common Prayer as the uniform order for worship in the Church of England. So they were Church of England ministers, they were ordained, but they had difficulty with the Book of Common Prayer because it was so close to the roman Missal and the ver- variety of other things that they disagreed with in parliament said well you're out there was no uh, there was no pension in those days there, there was nothing you're you're out on your ear you got nothing but their people rallied to them and the variety of services that were held under bridges under trees in people's homes uh, wherever there was a possible possibility of obtaining a hall Uh, quiet secret meetings were held all over the place they were determined to keep preaching the gospel, one of the things that I really enjoyed was that a number of them that that were put into jail would uh, preach sermons through the the bars of their cell and the people would gather, up to a thousand, thousand or more of them would gather to listen to the gospel to the teaching of scripture a bit different to our era in this century. So that's the great ejection, and we're going to meet that each time with the Puritans because it is very significant what happened to these men because they stood firm for what the scripture says, not for what the the church authorities said. Now, Puritanism, the word Puritan originated in the 1560s as a pejorative which was hurled at people who wanted further reformation in the Church of England it's still a pejorative today ah you're puritanical or you're a Puritan with a sneer or you're a Calvinist uh, people who don't understand who are really ignorant <laughs> use words like that and think that they're being smart The Puritans honoured God above all and gave everyone his due with the word of God his rule in worship. We've all heard of J.I. Packer he died a few years ago Uh, he was an Anglican who was brought up in England had an amazing ministry there and then he went to Regent College in Canada died at the age of 94 in the year twenty twenty. Uh, if you get hold of any of Packer's books they're worth they're really worth reading. Packer wrote Puritanism was an evangelical holiness movement seeking to implement its vision of spiritual renewal national and personal in the state, the church, the home, in education, evangelism and economics, in individual discipleship and devotion, and in pastoral care and competence. That is quite a sentence, and it is very wide-ranging. Will you notice that it goes beyond the local church? Its concern is economics, which is really picking up what happened in the Reformation with Luther. And the rest, the great change that came. History is being degraded in our universities today, but any that still teach it in a, with an obviously in a purely secular fashion can't ignore the impact of the Reformation and what happened in Western civilization. And it impacted not just the church, but every area of life as God worked in such a variety of ways. So Packer is picking that up and seeing that it's only a century, only a century after the Reformation. And here's this impact on life in general and everywhere that was happening. Well, we better look at Thomas Watson. He was born in Yorkshire a serious scholar who obtained his Bachelor of Arts at Emanuel College, Cambridge in 1639, his Masters in 1642. After living for a while with a Puritan family, he went to London as a lecturer for ten years at St Stephen's Walbrook and then the Rector for six years. Now I found it difficult to know the difference between a lecturer and uh, a rector, a modern word is say a pastor or a minister, but uh, both these words were used for those who did the preaching in the church whether they were the lecturer or the rector it was very similar. He married Abigail Beadle in 1647, whose father held Puritan convictions as a minister in Essex during the next 13 years they had seven children four of them died young the aspect of infant mortality in these days was absolutely staggering it was just beyond beyond understanding Uh, people had children but because of the lack of care no, no natal work was done Uh, I'm not sure where the doctors were, but at any rate, they were a bit different to what they are today. Um, Ask these guys here, they'll they'll tell you. And uh, the death rate was enormous. During the Civil War, which uh, was the time of Oliver Cromwell, Watson embraced Presbyterian views. However, he had sympathy for the king, and he went to Oliver Cromwell with other Presbyterians to protest Against the execution of Charles I, didn't get didn't get very far though. In 1651, with a few others, he was imprisoned for being involved in a plot to restore the monarchy. In 1652, he was reinstated to his Walbrook ministry, and then ten years later, he was ejected from the pastorate with the passing of the Act of Uniformity. Now the Act of Uniformity in 1662 is an act of the Parliament of England. It prescribed the form of public prayers, the administration of the sacraments and other rites of the established Church of England according to the rites and ceremonies prescribed in the Book of Common Prayer. So unless you would head to the Book of Common Prayer of that time, you were on the skids. Adherence to this was required in order to hold any office in government or the church. Although the 1662 edition of the Book of Common Prayer, described by the Act, was so new that most people had never seen a copy. And there was great limitation as regards the publishing of these volumes. The act also required that the Book of Common Prayer quote, be truly and exactly translated into the British or Welsh tongue. It also explicitly required episcopal ordination for all ministers, that is, for deacons, priests and bishops had to be episcopal ordination which had to be reintroduced since the Puritans had abolished many features of the church during the Civil War. So there was all sorts of up and down and there was no news broadcasts. Uh, Channel 9 wasn't operating nor Channel 2 in those days and people were finding things out months and months and months if they ever found out news after it had happened. As an immediate result of this act now I've got there over 2,000, which, which is, the number is a bit elastic, but I think two, two and a half plus thousand clergymen refused to take the oath. And they were expelled from the Church of England in what became known as the Great Ejection of 1662. Now we've touched on this, but it's worth being reminded again of it. Although there had already been ministers outside the established church, this created the concept of nonconformity, with a substantial section of English society excluded from public affairs for a century and a half. And we've still got nonconformity. Um, I used to pride myself on being a nonconformist without knowing what it meant. But um, if you're outside the established church, uh, you're a nonconformist. However. Watson continued to preach in barns, woods, homes, wherever. By the year 1600, so we just go back a little bit, London's population was estimated at 400,000. 1666 was the Great Fire of London, which broke out in a Pudding Lane bakery just after midnight on Sunday the 2nd. Of September. Now, there's a background to this, which again I haven't got time to go into, but uh, you've probably all heard of the the bubonic plague. Uh, ancient investigations suggest that that the gremlins or the beginnings of this bubonic plague went back for centuries, uh, largely because of the lack of health situations, the requirements for health that that we we take for granted, but just weren't available back in those centuries. Uh, It's called the Black Death, the bubonic plague, and apparently there is ancient DNA. If you want to find out more, just ask some of the medical people here, I'm sure they'll tell you. But the fire, the great fire, swept through central London and lasted until Thursday the 6th. Only four days, but it was enough to just about ruin the whole scene of London. The medieval city of London, inside the old Roman city wall, was gutted. The Great Fire had demographic, social, political and cultural impact and caused the largest dislocation of the city's residential structure until the Blitz. Well, the Blitz was in the early 1940s, and we we know something of how London suffered in that, particularly the dock areas. Allegations that Catholics started the fire were used as political propaganda by opponents of the court of Charles II, but there's no proof that the Catholics had anything to do with the starting of the fire. Now, just as a as an aside here, you can say this is a commercial. Um, uh, there was something which was called the Popish Plot. It was a fictitious conspiracy um, invented rather by Titus Oates, and that wasn't his real name anyway, that between 1678 and 1681 it gripped the the kingdoms of England and Scotland in anti-Catholic hysteria. Oates alleged that there was an extensive Catholic conspiracy to assassinate Charles II accusations that led to the executions of at least 22 men and precipitated the exclusion bill crisis which was developed by Parliament Oates's intricate web of accusations fell apart leading to his arrest and conviction for purgatory. After the Great Fire, Thomas Watson used a large room for public worship, available to anyone wishing to attend. He obtained a licence for Crosby Hall Bishopsgate from Sir John Langham, a nonconformist patron. After preaching for three years, he was joined by Stephen Charnock, another one of the well-known Puritans, until Charnock's death. Watson kept ministering until his health failed. He retired to Barnston in Essex and died suddenly in 1686 while praying. That would be a marvellous way to go, wouldn't it? I must, must keep that in mind. He was buried in the same grave as his father-in-law, who had ministered in Barnston. Now again from Beakey and Pedersen's work, Watson's depth of doctrine, clarity of expression warmth of spirituality, love of application and gift of illustration enhanced his reputation as a preacher and writer. His books are still widely read today. Now they've been republished and I brought one of them along just to let you know you can get them from any Christian uh, bookshop but they've been republished in modern English. So here's his little book on the doctrine of repentance. It's not very long. Uh, this publication has 122 pages, so you can read it before bed one night. But uh, in, modern, in modern English, the workings of Thomas Watson. Some of his other works I've mentioned here a body of divinity, which I didn't bring. It's quite, quite substantial size. Published by the Banner of Truth Trust, and this is his magnum opus. This is this is the most important one he's written. Uh, it was published after his death, and his most famous work. It follows the question and answer format of the Westminster Shorter Catechism with 176 sermons on Christianity's essential teachings included also the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. Now it's a sorrow to me that most of our churches don't have the Lord's Prayer, don't know the Ten Commandments, don't have anything of the sort of um, training that the Puritans have brought to us uh, we've all, we'd rather have watches which have to be a certain time so that we don't, we're don't we not there too long uh, in the service but uh, if I get started on that we'll be here till midday or more so it's, it's just the fact that a lot of these issues that the Puritans emphasised are missing in our worship today Another book, The Doctrine of Repentance again a Puritan paperback by the Banner of Truth Trust Uh, The two great graces essential to a saint he wrote in this life are faith and repentance Repentance is never out of season Repentance is purgative It is better to go with difficulty to heaven than with ease to hell That's a telling statement Repentance is pure gospel grace. Another one was the gleanings from Thomas Watson. He had the gift of presenting profound doctrinal truth in vivid images and colourful metaphors. He who is ashamed of Christ, he wrote, is ashamed to Christ. Worldly sorrows hasten our funerals. They that bear the cross patiently shall wear the crown triumphantly. So these little sayings that came up enhanced his writing and his ministry to people. Heaven taken by storm was based on Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, which reads, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Interesting verse, isn't it? How to use the various means of grace is his emphasis. How the Christian is to take the kingdom of heaven by holy violence through the reading and exposition of scripture, prayer, meditation, self-examination, conversation and keeping the Lord's day. How many of those emphases are part of our life today? explains how the believer is to battle against self Satan and the world and counters objections and hindrances to offering such violence and the final aspect uh, that I've got here is his book Religion Our True Interest. Uh, It's based on his notes on Malachi chapter 3 verses 16 to 18 which I won't read now with helpful teaching on religious conversation, God centred thinking, God's disposition towards his people and the fear of God which Watson defines as quote reverencing and adoring God's holiness and setting ourselves always under his sacred inspection. So be good to close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the power and ministry of your Holy Spirit for your movements in history, movements that affect us today. We thank you for the freedoms that we have to worship in spirit and in truth. We thank you that we all have a Bible that we can read and meditate upon and learn from but we confess that so often the busyness of life grabs us and we get wrung out doing all sorts of things. Father, as a result of looking at these Puritan people who were no different to us really, they weren't weren't better Christians, they were perhaps different, help us in our own life to realise that we follow you day by day because your spirit is within us. Bless us each one in the name of Christ and for the glory of his name. Amen.